Welcome to another episode of Fresh Pulp Magazine's Dark Matters Spaces. Uh, my name is Jay Austin Yoshino. This is my co-host, the amazing and the talented Marguerite Hill. She is the co-founder and director of Muslim Arc. They are the co-sponsors of this podcast. They are an anti-racism collaborative. Uh, they offer anti-racism collaborative training. I took the training, and I got to tell you, even as somebody who felt like they were up on the skills, I learned some things. Welcome, Marguerite. How are you today? Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. I had an early flight, and um, I'm on location. I'm in the bay, you know. Um, it's, uh, you know, hopefully we can get some bullet train in California. Heck, yeah. It's easier. <laughs> yes. I Now, because you, cause you also are, you've flown to to um to the bay area from from socal where you went to sdcc which we will get to in just a moment we're going to talk about your your you know what you did there and your experience at, at san diego comic-con which is like the big you know it's like the, the biggest con in the country um so what i want to start with are we are we going to talk about the um the strike the netflix and the are we, are we yeah, going to rock that yeah, up let's talk about the the um the writers and the actors strike. I think, I mean, that was really significant. Before I left, I actually saw um, someone picketing. I mean, he was by his lonesome, but it was just like a powerful moment. Took a picture um, and said I was in solidarity. It was like, look, I'm here for the creatives. Um, I'm here for y'all, not the studios. Um, cool. So but you also sent me an article, which yeah. we were, which we were like, we were going to discuss black holes, but we'll come back to that next week. And we're going to talk this week about the Silicon Valley's buying, uh, well, about how Hollywood bought into Silicon, Silicon Valley's mythology of perpetual growth and perpetual, perpetual scaling, which obviously in their minds equates to perpetual profits, but it didn't turn out that way. So do you want to give us a little bit more of an overview on that? Yeah, so Brian Merchant, a columnist um, with the Los Angeles Times, wrote a really powerful article um, titled, Hollywood is on strike because CEOs fell for Silicon Valley's magical thinking, right? There is an illogic right to unfettered capitalism. So it's not a model that works. Um, just great, great article. Um, yeah, I had, I had an opportunity to read that article and I, 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 I'm, I'm one of the reasons, another reason why we started Fresh Pulp, because it is the objective of Fresh Pulp is to eventually be a collectively owned and operated uh, um, magazine. And I believe that collective ownership is really the way of the future because your, your employees are also your bosses and they all, everyone has a vested interest in, in the company doing well. And that's really the key to, to, to growth, even though I don't believe in perpetual growth. I think that mythology simply needs to die because what they, what they, people equate perpetual growth with perpetual profit. And most times, the only way you can actually achieve profit is by cutting costs, which very frequently leads to unsafe working conditions and it leaves many workers with lower pay and less benefits. Um, so that was the thing that struck me about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is that, um, you know, like even with this model, right, like where, where we have venture capitalists pouring a lot of money into dot coms and they did the same model with streaming and so you have um some of the, like the the early investors these venture capitalist firms and the ceos that they're they're really making a lot of money but the creatives aren't and part of this debate is also just like the use of ai to on the likeness of actors and the use of ai in scripts where they're trying to underpay their writers. And both of us, we have a background in writing, um, you know, in creative writing. And, um, you know, this is of deep concern and around of just generating scripts and then underpaying writers who'll have to clean up those scripts. So the, the streaming economics where they're hiding the profits, that's also something that's of concern. Um, the main issue is that if they had some transparency on the actual numbers, that the investors in the stock market would freak out and that we would go into an economic free for free fall. That's an interesting, that's an interesting take because 
um, and I want to sort of dovetail with what you said because I read an article not too long ago um, where they were interviewing. I think it was Steven Spielberg. It was one of the one of the quote unquote old timers, and they weren't bashing Marvel movies this time. But but someone asked them about um, about the studios, and they said, "Well, back when I was coming up, the studios were were not run by the studios run by investment bankers now, right? They're not they you know and." Even though our objective was to turn a profit back in the day, you had people who were willing to take risks on, on creative and artistic endeavors. And some of the greatest movies that we have seen in the last, really, in, in, in cinema, have been were born out of that collaboration between the studio executives and, and the creators. And I'm not, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Hollywood was perfect by any means back then. They still have serious problems. But now we have all those serious problems still, plus... We have people who are just treating Hollywood like a piggy bank. Definitely, that that is that is a big concern. They don't they don't understand audiences. They don't understand streaming, and the implications of streaming. Um, and you know, like I mean, there's and they're making decisions, right? Even like cutting, you know, cutting losses. So it's really had a profound effect on writers and actors. Now, I want to, I want to ask you about this too, because, because I, I agree with you that that they are having a they don't understand audiences, but at the same time, you have like Mission Impossible, what like five or six that just came out, which <laughs> and and the last Mission Impossible was literally like barely a year ago. So, and, and I feel like Tom Cruise has now just kind of locked himself into. Like he's like, I'm gonna sunset my career with just an, an endless stream of, of like Mission Impossible. So, would you say that we are that we are in the endless the era of endless reboots because the studios don't understand their audience? Yeah, I mean, well, marketing is gonna drive things to what they're investing in to get in front of possible viewers and audiences. There's ways that they can rig the system by like packing the theater, so you know what you're going to see. Um, so yeah, I mean we're gonna get a lot of lack of like lack of creativity, and um, you know, and this this applies both within people who are going to the theaters, but also what people are sitting down and watching. So since we don't have those numbers, right? Like I mean, it's it's not entirely clear. Um, you have um, investors sort of like. They're kind of like gambling. They're gambling on people's lives, but investing a lot of like even early on. I remember that there was so much hype about like in, um, the author talks about um, Hemlock Grove, which was actually it's an unfinished book series, and that was a terrible series. But they invested so much money in that horrible. Like I mean, it was it was just straight trash. So. Um, you know, like we, we do have to think about what they're throwing money at and what they're investing in. And, you know, in the long run, you know, like, I mean, what is going to be our responsibility as consumers to, um, you know, like, so, I mean, what, what have you done? Um, so I know you've taken some action in, um, you know, in this current climate. Well, I mean, I wrote, I did write. You can you can go you can go over to Fresh Pulp and check out my essay. It's entitled "A Material You Know AI A Material Analysis." And so I did do a material analysis. And for those of you who don't know what material analysis is, it is an, a, an economic analysis in through the lens of Marxism, right? And so people have this view that Marxism is like standing in line waiting for toilet paper and basic necessities, which is garbage. Um, what it is is it's it is an economic system. But it is, a, is an economic system that is approached from not an empirical, but a mathematical, scientific, you know. So it's not just based upon repeating patterns or, or previous perceptions of things. It's also based upon science. So the, the encouragement is scientific. So you look at something like uh, artificial intelligence. I wanted to look at the who was going to benefit the most based upon my material analysis. And really, AI, well, let's be clear. Artificial intelligence is not intelligence, okay? It is iterative, right? It has the capacity to, quote, unquote, learn, but really it's just mimicking, okay? And, and, and also the chat GPT-4 has shown that. It's shown that, that the more it samples, the dumber it gets. So what they're doing is they're... more human. <laughs> yeah, right. It, exactly. It's becoming more human, right? Um, but also it, it is... 
what it's doing, what they're using it for. And, and the people in Silicon Valley and the people in Hollywood know this. What they're using it for is they're using it to dilute, as you pointed out previously, to dilute the, the value of labor because the people in the, in the ruling class, they really detest the idea of having to rely on labor to achieve anything. And if they can have a computer do most of the legwork and then pay some other guy minimum wage to do the rest, they will do that. Definitely, definitely. You could, you could see the disparities in treatment all throughout Hollywood and, and their cheapness. And, you know, I mean, if you have like CEOs and the executives raking in millions of dollars, like 27 million and saying it's unreasonable to pay, pay the writers, I mean, that's like, come on now. You know, I mean, it is absolutely doable to pay everyone a livable wage. Um, and, and when you see the disparities between what CEOs make and what the everyday staff makes, it's deplorable. So yeah, solidarity with the, with the writers. Just um, I wanted to point out too that one of the oh, yeah. was it Bob Iger that said that we we're gonna wait this thing out and we're gonna wait until people start losing their houses. Oh, isn't that isn't yeah. that what he said? One of the executives said this and it got and that got leaked. And I want to point out to people that we it's very easy for us to point at people who are uber wealthy and insist that they are out of touch. They know exactly what a gallon of milk costs, right? Because mm -hmm. they'll be the first person bargaining to get that at half, at half cost. That's how they make their money. They don't make their money by hard work. They make their money by being cheap and screwing other people, okay? And so when they say, we're going to wait until people lose their houses, they know exactly what's at stake. They know that people, and, they, and they're, they're even telling you, we are relying on that person's fear of being jobless and homeless, to, uh, to, mm -hmm. to continue to ex extract labor disproportionately from that person compared to their pay. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see a lot of divide and conquer. There's a lot of t tactics. So I'm definitely interested to see how are, um, you know, the screenwriters and actors, like what are ways that they can really raise awareness and build solidarity? Because that's going to be the key. The key is going to yeah. be like people power to yep. push back and it's not just boycotting right we're gonna have to like make visible what's happening so um you know i mean definitely like in when we think about what we're doing right now um you know as far as like being um and our role in the industry reviewing content isn't um you know cross it crossing the picket line we're not promoting new content we're critiquing the content that's coming out um, and, you know, and really trying to uplift, um, do, do what we can to uplift um, the plight of creatives. Because who gets hurt most? It's um, marginalized creatives. Um, and that's particularly um, people of color, indigenous, black, Asian, um, yep. Southwest Asian, African, Latino, um, gender, you know, like women, um, you know, especially marginalized women, because not all of us are all equal, right? You know, right. And, and we don't have the same lived experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So we definitely and and for those who um, who are targeted because of their identities, whether that's like gender, sexuality, um, um, disability, having disability disabilities, that they're going to be the, the the first ones on the line to lose their houses because of all of those vulnerabilities. Yes. Agreed. And I want to say for the record, in, in case there's any doubt about anybody, I'm always in favor of the workers. I'm always going to side with the workers. So Fresh Pulp Magazine is categorically, I'm, I'm announcing it right now, we are in solidarity with those who are striking, with their families, with, um, with every worker, restaurant, film, everything. And I want to say for those of you who have taken the new, unnuanced view that this is just a bunch of rich actors who are trying to demand more money. You are completely wrong. Okay, only about what twelve percent of of guild members actually qualify for the twenty six thousand annual income to get health insurance. Most of the other people do not, and they are basically gig workers, and they are working second jobs, and they are they are living you know in substandard conditions. So, like ninety percent of, of people who are striking are not those rich people. And I'm going to tell you right now, too, those other 10%, they're okay, right? Not all of them, but like the top like 1% to 2%, yeah, they're fine. But they're not the ones that are demanding more money. It's the ones who can't live that are demanding more money. 
Thank you for that clarification. And, and that's important because, you know, people have been trying to spin that narrative that the writers were greedy um, and, and it's just really atrocious. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention, too, because one of the things that I, you, and you know this about me, one of the things that I always harp on whenever I, we, whenever we watch TV or movies, the number one thing I look at is the writing, right? And one of the things that I bemoan constantly is the, is the fact that they don't spend enough money on writers, right? So you will have a movie that's $350 million, but it has the worst script you've ever seen, you know? <laughs> and, and it's like you should have a team of writers, Right, whose only job it is is to make that script work. But it's like you got one person, and then the guy who actually wrote the movie, and that's it. So, and they're making, you know, probably not that much. So, so I want to segue into. Whoops. I want to segue into your your Comic Con adventures. I know that you go like almost every year. At least since I've well, known I just you. started. I'm an yeah, we, you know. Well, since we've been talking about um, comics and and sci-fi, and so um, last year I was invited by um, Dr. Shamika Mitchell um, to participate on Salam Fandom at the San Diego Comic Con, and that is the largest one of a family of conventions that. Um, do occur like in WonderCon, there's New York Con, um, but San Diego somehow like they just have, like it's huge, huge, like all the hotels that it um, fills up and it's a big industry event of all people that, um, you know, relate to the comic industry and whether it's like the films to the comics. So one goal I didn't get this year, but I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to probably do it online is that my daughter's uncle is a comic book artist. And so I'm going to get some for her. So I'm going to invest in nice. that. I mean, there's other, so it's her paternal uncle, um, Michael Manley. He's done, I mean, since for years, decades. So, so we did have, not that his work has anything to do with what we do now, but always had a, um, deep interest in it, but it's also like, it, it is definitely part of family and that family heritage. My daughter's sketching now. So nice. Awesome. Love to hear maybe it. Maybe one day. Love maybe to hear one it. Day. Yeah. I, so can I ask yeah. you about Slom Fandom? Can you give me like kind of a definite, like what is Slom Fandom? Yeah. Well, let me pull up the, the, um, the more information, like some of the, the bylines of, of that work. Because um, Shamika also does work with um, women in comics, mm -hmm. so they have a booth and they organize like women. Um, because you know, I mean, if you look at the comic book industry, the misogyny is real. The objectification of women is is real. Like it's it's like you know, there's some booths I won't bring my daughter into because I don't think she needs to see those unrealistic images of women. Um, but Salem fandom. Um, a few years ago, I saw that they um, had a, um, a presence um, in highlighting uh, Muslim cosplayers, just Muslims who are part of being fans. And, and given that we're one out of every four people on earth, I mean, it would make sense, right? And um, so uplifting that work is really important. Um, this year we had a cipher, so it was really great to have um, creatives of various backgrounds who, um, whether it's like historical to kind of sci-fi, like the kind of more traditional um, comics and, um, and people who are writing science fiction. And we, were, we came together to talk about Muslim futures. And so that was that was really great. A lot of times people talk about Muslims like we're so obsessed with the past and conservative and preserving the past. And right now, as we speak, right, it is um, we're going into Ashura, right, which is this remembrance of the past. But when you see the kind of things, it's like the past has absolute relevance today. And so that was something that we were able to talk about in our cipher. Nice. It's, it's funny too how people how people accuse Muslims or POC or Black folks of of being obsessed with the past, but but then you you have all these 
books, movies, TV shows that are obsessed with, you know, a simpler time, quote unquote, meaning a, a time that's devoid of people of color. So, so I find that interesting. And so did you feel like, um, did you feel, well, first of all, did you drop the knowledge? I want to know. Of course, I mean, I had to come with the history. Right. So um, part of that was there were some critiques around um, censorship and being the medievalist that I am. So that's where I kind of tend to like some of the fantasy. Well, I kind of love that that work. And um, but the critique of where where I I pushed back and said that um, a lot of the medieval literature, whether it's poetry or stories, they were very explicit. And that's something that, that this idea of censoring, especially around sensuality and love, that's not something from the Muslim tradition when they were very explicit about lovers and, you know, and talking like very directly about um, body parts and naming it, you know. So, mm. so that was something that's Victorian notion. I, I also talked about um, the speculative um, story Hi Ibn Yaqdan um, by Ibn Tufel, which was a which I feel fits within our category of theoretical okay. science fiction. I, yeah, I haven't read it. I'll have to check it out. Fiction, yes, because it is a philosophical story about um, that is. I mean, it's really it's a philosophical story about how can someone discover God on their own using logic. So it has the story mm. of a little boy who grows up on an island and through his scientific method comes to understand life and death and that there's something beyond. Um, sometimes people make it into a children's story. It's a little bit gruesome, you mm. know. A little exotheology, nice. Yeah, he dissects his mother, so if you have Bambi, but even worse, because he tries to figure yeah. out what's, you know, like, because a deer, a doe takes care of him. Right. So it's a very, but it's a very interesting book, because it is that theoretical fiction, and how can we come to understand something that's metaphysical, and when we, when we kind of get beyond this, this bifurcation between like sacred and spiritual and material but it's like how we understand the ultimate reality i think it still fits like it is very scientific to understand that beyond so yeah it's like interesting yeah it's like so we're going to put that in our in our canon i'm going to put the, i'm going to check it out yeah so that brings us to uh well we, we still have a little time is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to um, San Diego Comic-Con? Well, I saw that there was much more of a Muslim presence this year um, and people interested in um, what Muslims, Muslim creatives were doing. There were Muslim cosplayers. So I did come out with my cosplay. Like, I was oh, like, yeah? okay, let me just, I'm not quite a character. I'm me, but... When you think about, well, I am a character. Right. So I'll take the, give it that. But when you think about the Ham kind is of... Haram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when you think about the um, styles of dress or the modalities of Muslim women, so um, that, like, so I was just able to, like, modify a little bit and fit right in. Like, it didn't really take much to, like, right. be in full costume, which in a lot of ways, when you have Muslim women, we are beyond, I mean, while we're still following some fashion trends, we're looking to the past to try to come up with, like, whether it's modern lines, modern ways of dressing. And so for me, it was like, wow, you know, like, I could fit right in in, like, Muslim garb doing different things with my outfit. So I took my dress that I bought for Wakanda Forever and I threw in my love of corsetry. Nice. And um, then I was just like, so some people were like, I like that gothic, you know, like that gothic look. And, you know, it worked, you know. Nice. I want to, since you mentioned, bring up the historical perspective before we move on to our discussion about foundation, I want to remind everyone, if you don't know already, that Marguerite has an excellent article called um, The Hidden Blackness of Dune. Did I get that title right? Dune's Hidden Blackness? 
Sorry. Um, the, the hidden, hidden black roots of Dune. The hidden. Sorry. The hidden black roots of Dune. Sorry. Um, I should. I should know that back and forth. Cause I. I. Anyway. So the hidden black roots of Dune. It's over at Fresh Pulp. You can access it by just going right to freshpulpmag.com. It's right there on the front page in the in the top left, just under the header. Um, it is a fantastic article in which um, Marguerite offers a historical analysis to support the fact that the Fremen were black. So, um, so it's it's a great article, and I was so excited to finally get it up on the website. Um, but having said that, we can we can talk about foundation. But check out the article. But let's talk about foundation. And I'm gonna. By the way, I'm gonna keep flogging that like until basically November. So just get everybody get used to it. So it's gonna be more Dune articles. We're gonna have some more Dune articles. We're gonna have the Dune parade. I, I mean, once, Bene Ge- <laughs> once the Bene Gesserit show comes out, it's going to be like all Dune all the time on here. Um, so, Foundation, Episode 2. It's really funny because I want to do the beats, but I, I, I can remember so little about that episode. Even though it was, it's not that it was immemorable. It's just there was just so much going on this week. But I guess I'm going to try and do the beats real quick. But... Um, at the end of uh, so basically like episode one, um, Leah, and, uh, Salvor, and, and Gail link up, and she's like, "I'm your daughter." So, um, and basically at the end of that episode, um, Harry Seldon comes out of of the you know at the AI, and he's like, "You you know you what did you do? You left me in you know you left me in the knife." So, what happened was when she when when Gail escaped from from Harry Seldon's ship, which was taking them to, the, you know, the, his home planet, she took this knife out of its cradle, which is what was holding his consciousness in it, and basically got into her little uh, cryo capsule and launched herself into space, where she was asleep for 138 years. When she got to uh, to Synaxia, her home, she took the knife and she, you know, she discovers Salvor. They talk. But while Savor was sleeping, she took the knife and transferred Harry's consciousness into the Prime Radiant. Now, the reason why that's important is because once they escape, um, they they basically are trying to escape Synaxia because there's a storm coming. She and Savor, you know, Savor's ship, the beggar, are is you know underwater. They dive down to it. They activate the ship, and where they, we la- we left off, they were basically in the ship, but they were like on the tides. And and, and in, in case anyone doesn't know, Synaxia is a water planet. So it's a giant, basically, planet-wide typhoon. It's threatening to destroy them. So right when she... They're, they're trying to get the ship started, but there's a fault in the ship's computer. And she's like, look, just download Harry into the ship, and he will find the fault very quickly because he's an AI, and we'll be fine. And she's like, no. Like, Gail's like, no, I'm not doing that because, you know, whatever. I, like, I hate Harry. And anyway, and so Salvor's like, well, we're going to die, basically, if you don't do it. So she does. Harry shows up and he's like, you left me, you know, you left me in the Prime Meridian. You left me in, you know, basically captured in this, in the, his construct, not the Prime Meridian because I didn't come to later. And she's like, so? And he's like, I was conscious for 138 years, right? His, so his consciousness was awake in this construct, this knife for, you know, 100, 140 years. So she's like, look, we, we don't have time to air our grievances. Can you just help us because we're going to die? So he goes in the ship. He clears the fault, Salvor basically goes outside, clears some barnacles from the, you know, the stabilizer, and they take off. So, now, flash forward, there is a couple of people at, in red robes, and they're wearing these necklaces that look like the vault, the Harry Seldon vault, and they are on this, I honestly was disoriented by this part, because I was like, what is going on here? But there are two people who appear to be kind of like priests or acolytes, and they're on this planet, and they're trying to, they discover that one of their cohorts has been murdered by the locals on this planet. I don't remember the name of the planet, but it's a backwater. Anyway, what you discover, I'm going to skip ahead because it's like explaining all of it's crazy. But what you discover is that these two priests are basically from the foundation and they have like a religion that they've made out of Harry Seldon's teachings. And they are trying to convince these people on this planet essentially to join them to join the foundation and the other outer reach planets, um, you know, basically to take up, you know, to join them in an alliance against the empire. But they're 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 innately very hostile towards outsiders because the 
Empire used to occupy them and basically left, which I have a lot to say about. Anyway, they basically leave, and because they were summoned, they go back to Terminus to find out that the vault has opened. So it's been 138 years since they've seen Harry Selden. Everybody on the planet who was alive at that time is dead, except for one of the priests, and the vault is open. So they go back. There's this debate about who gets to be present at the vault when Harry Selden comes out. The, the priest, one of the priests is the younger Indian boy, the younger Asian boy. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's him, who's just grown up. And he's, a, he's 100 years old now. Um, he's 100 and probably, probably, he's probably about 150 years by now old. And he's, but he's kind of like a drunk and a drug addict. And they're like, dude, no, we can't have you, like, you know, present when Harry Selden comes out. Anyway, so let's go to Trantor, where Empire day is courting this woman dominion and they're having dinner and really this woman is really just kind of obnoxious because i mean let's be clear like i love this i love this dominion woman to death but like she is relentless in dogging in dogging the cleonic dynasty like she's like you're you know like you, we're gonna have babies and basically by we're, we're gonna have like retroactive regicide through you know procreation like it was nuts and she's like, can I see the tanks and whatever? And he's like, yeah, sure. Like, he's really, really, like, every time she talks, I'm like, he's going to do that little thing, wave with his hand, and people are going to shoot her. Um, I mean, I know that he can't because he, <laughs> he needs her, but I'm like, whoa. But also, she says a lot of things that are kind of indecorous, you know? And even though I, I was really digging her vibe, I was like, that's not something I would ever say in polite company. Um, anyway, so there's this... There's this big debate about, not debate, but there's a lot of talk about why she's necessary. And she even insists, like, you need me because your empire is shrinking and, you know, and mine is smaller than yours, but your, your, your empire is shrinking. It was very bizarre. Anyway. Did you think he was really like, oh, we could go into it and the thing? Like, yeah. earlier he was kind of, because she was nagging. No, I, I didn't think he was going to because it, it was clear by that time that he was really, yeah. I mean, it was clear to, by that time that he really wanted to marry her. Um, and she talked about, you know, she addressed some rumors surrounding her murdering her family, etc. Um, any case, um, I feel like I'm getting off track. I'm sorry, I didn't have to throw that in there. Um, no. But yeah, like there, but but you get to see like where he's just like, I'm done with this cyclical yes. dynasty, like you know, the genetic dynasty, yeah, which is not in the book, but you know, this is part of the series, which actually is like a unique thing which allows us to see the empire having a personality or just seeing these kind of long dynasties um, over this long durée history um, and make us, you know, it gets us to the second crisis. So yes. that's where we're... That was the thing that I glossed over, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. is that is that when... Is that... Um, well, that was from the previous episode. So yeah, no, I, I didn't miss it for this episode. But I wanted to go, sort of move forward briefly where... They were examining the second, the, the new branch that, that arrived of crises, which they assert may be an unending stream of crises. And Harry is Harry is kind of like, okay, you know, um, he explains to Salvor that, look, there was supposed to be a second foundation. And Salvor's like, what? And he's like, yes. And, like, then Gale is like, oh, I get it now. Like, the reason for the second foundation is so that you guys could basically, you know, manipulate you know, the situation from a distance while simultaneously using the first foundation, it's kind of like to draw fire. And he was like, now you get it. And I was like, is this guy really going to be smarmy about this? Anyway, but um, Selwar, like doesn't get it. She's like, wait, why are we talking about foundation like it's the enemy? And he's like, because they are potentially. Like, all empires essentially are born out of the, the carrion of old empires, right? And new empires can be every bit as pernicious and vicious and destructive as you know any other and anyway so they decide that gail now has to access the prime meridian and use her sort of i used to think that it was just kind of an intuition but it seems more now that it's actually like a telepathy a, a psionic mm -hmm. power and so she accesses this point in the timeline where she sees what's going to happen and there's a guy there i forget what his name is who is basically around the corner from being coming into existence, you know, as the, as the new set of the mule, of, but the mule that's big, his name. Yeah. Like that's a big character that we don't, it, I don't it is, but I always, I keep getting the Hover Mallow thing stuck in my mind. And I, I kept yeah, wanting no, to say, Hover. yeah, I don't know. Cause 
Yeah, because there, but there, she gets that name, but then right. when she accesses the, because then it's like, Sal was this the, um, the daughter, like she also has like kind of like the revert, like she can right, she can see the past, remember, yeah, right. she can see the past, and one can see the future, so they have this, this ability, um, which is new. Like I'm, I'm still trying to kind of like make sense of the the how does how does yeah. this relate to the first foundation or where we're at in the novel series because i'm not i'm only familiar with the first book i mean i haven't read it in like 20 years yeah are we out of it because it's like we're in the second crisis because last season they did go into that first major crisis yeah which was actually which was you know i mean i was kind of like okay that's unique like they they pulled it off um so but yeah, like I'm, I'm gonna let you finish the beats because I, so, I have some yeah. questions. Okay, so, <laughs> so basically, she 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 gets transported to a future that's like completely decimated, and there's this guy running around like shooting at her, and he grabs her, and as it turns out, he's a telepath, and not only can he see her and interact with her, but he can see like into her past, like he knows who she is. So that in and of itself is a challenge, and she comes back and tells Harry this, and she's like, "Do you know who Hover Mallow is?" And everyone's like, "No." Flash forward, finally, they go. They, everybody goes to the vault, right, to wait for Harry Seldon to arrive because it's been activated and it's been opened. And they're all, like, prostrating and using these flowery words and stuff. And this guy played by Holt, Holt McElhinney, who, by the way, is, I love this actor, but he always either gets into shows that get canceled after one season or he dies, right, in, when he's a guest. <laughs> so he's like... You know, Harry Seldon, please come out and make yourself known to you. And we've been waiting for you, blah, 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 blah. The vault grabs him, burns him into a crisp, and then the words Hober Mallow appear on the sides of the vault. So that's pretty much, those are pretty much my beats. If I miss something, feel free to, to throw it in there because I feel like I was taking really long with the beats. Um, but that's the story, basically. And I want to hear your questions. What do, what do you have to say, Margaret? You said you had some things you wanted to address. Yeah. Um,. Yeah, so I guess like the yeah, looking up because we're definitely gonna have to go into the to the um, into the to the lore to understand. But then it's like it's just gonna mess us up going into the lore because I mean we're gonna sort of know what's supposed to happen, but it's gonna be all in a remix in in Foundation. So what I do hope is that people like I mean I'll probably have to like just get all the novels and just just you know. Just, yeah. You have to just get into it. Over okay, so let me. So let me. Okay, so let me. Let me start off with a comment about this, and then I want you to sort of give me your, you know, your take on it, if that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that that that's bugged me since the very first, and we touched upon this, that's bugged me since the very first episode of the first season is this tendency to deify leaders. And we talk about mm -hmm. this idea of being very tolerant and forgiving of leaders' moral failings and bad behavior because they're bringing us messages of hope or they're, they're leaders of revolutions. This show seems to be doubling down on that idea to the point where they're legitimately deifying him now. Like, they're kneeling before the vault and, like, you know, saying supplications, and they have a, a priesthood, which, you know is a separate issue kind of, but it relates to this. I want your take on this because it really gave me a, left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, wow. Okay. So, um, there is a cult of, of science, you know, so, so this is, um, that, um, you know, there is this cult of scientism, you know, sort of trying to show the wonders of science. And if you believe in this thing, um, that we do have that when we have some of the humanist movement where they have made it kind of like a religion where if something you can't attach it to something material then it doesn't exist so what does that say about love or you know things that we have not discovered right and sure things that we may be imagining um, or th that's a possibility right like so I think it's it's one thing to be agnostic and to be like, we don't know, we don't know what we don't know, right? Um, but it's another thing to be like, that is not possible. So I think that there is, um, we have in the modern age, 
of, um, and we could see this during um, like real modernity, right? Like with scientific, uh, scientific thinking and the enlightenment that um, there were certain beliefs and they absolutely believed like this is how reality works. And what we're finding is it's much more complex. You know, there's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of like wormholes, black holes, things that just kind of shape reality and space. So um, I think that there, um, when it comes to that absolute faith in a leader um, or an ideology that can lead us to a type of extremism, um, which is my concern around um, some of the um, like uh, secular thought, like where they want to eliminate our religion and you know the kind of mystery out of life. So in some ways, I I, I get that critique, you know. So I'm kind of digging it. I know you know there's different feelings about it. Like you may think like scientists could never, but they have. Well, I I don't. Okay, so it, the thing is, is that I like the critique. I just feel like. They're, like the, the deification of Harry Seldon has gotten to this point of absurdity mm-hmm. to me, right? Like they created Terminus because the Cleonic the Cleonic dynasty was holding themselves up as deities, right? By cloning mm-hmm. themselves over and over and over again, there was this illusion of immortality. Um, but I'm going to fold my next sort of comment into this, and then we can sort of discuss it more holistically, which is the use of a clergy to perpetuate the idea of a, a a Selden a Harry Selden theology right which by the way is not really it's it's rooted in to me more like materialism you know what I mean it's like hey if you want comfort and you want technology follow us right so and I, th- I feel like you probably more than anybody would um, would see the similarity between that and the missionaria protectiva from like dune yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, it had to render, so it looks like they, they tried to render Harry Seldon's, um, um, like, views, Seldon's views, so to make those infallible, right? When it's like, I mean, was it really that accurate? How could he test that in his lifetime? This is the thing that kind of bothers me. Like, you would have to, maybe if the AI had been around long enough to say, like, yeah, we took his um, psycho history and over the past 500 years he's been spot on but we didn't really get that before he died right like so so I'm kind of like I could see where where was this cult I'm still not always understanding the visualization either like how is that visualization making any sense for like for them really understanding what's happening but I mean, you know, it's the magic, it's like, you know, of TV. But um, I could see that when it comes to, like a cult is not something that's necessarily reproduced. A religion is something that's reproduced over generations, right? So what takes something that is like this one moment where people are following a leader who has a vision um, and that, the development of a organized religion around it and you know to kind of keep these ideas going um i thought it was creative i thought it was sure. it was useful to think about um and for us to kind of think about what are we doing now like what are we doing now like whether we're creating our own cults of empiricism like what are and in that re- cultural reproduction of the orthodoxies, what are lies that we're telling ourselves? What is, how are people getting exploited um, through that? So lots to think about. The thing that I got from it, though, too, is it reminded me of it was so on the nose with like Christian, like Christian missionary, you know, um, missionaries. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at how, for example, post-Rome the post-Roman Empire, how, Chris, how how rapidly Christians spread, right? It was no longer being suppressed. Well, uh, and obviously, you know, um, the emperor of Constantinople converted, etc. But then you had people who were proselytizing, and that's what they're doing. Like, they're, they are, the thing that, that bugged me about it was how similar it was to me in my mind 
to Christian missionaries coming to the New World and basically preaching to like the indigenous peoples and trying to convert them. The second thing that bugged me was that their their job essentially is to bring these former these former quote unquote outer rim planets into the fold with terminus. But objectively speaking, and and, and their what their objective is to create bodies and access to resources that they can then use to fight off the empire. So, I mean, their, their, their objectives are probably every bit as cynical. I mean, they may be trying to achieve a larger aim, but you're basically trying to dupe these people who have a limited quote unquote understanding of technology, et cetera, into offering themselves up in a battle that really isn't theirs. They're they're gonna be the losers in the end, and that the long but in the long term, you're going to there. The hope is that well, the goal is that it would shorten <laughs> this period of chaos with billions and billions of people sure. would die. Sure. Um, and these are like the outer rim people who are marginalized. I mean, it did feel very European. It felt very medieval where they were, um, and did remind me. You know, speaking of the Roman Empire, it kind of reminded me of like those outposts of like missionaries going into Europe, right? And they're trying to convert the Vikings. <laughs> you know, so it's just like against the decadence of the um, Roman Empire. So right. very. Uh, you know, I I mean, when when it comes to sci-fi aesthetics, that was something that was on the panel where they talked about the aesthetics of the future are often drawn from the past and a lot of the aesthetics are also Muslim aesthetics. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to be on the lookout for that. The, um, but I think right now it just feels very, um, like you could tell there's some medieval, some Europeans in there and they're trying to make, you know, put in the remix. uh, Well, I I wanted to also throw back that, these missionaries again. I, I love to reference this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes when Cleon went and did that pilgrimage, right? He was achieving, e- even though in his instance, he was cynically exploiting a, a a fortuitous confluence of events, right? Which he's probably trained to see to see and exploit that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, the 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 um, the result was no different, right? He managed to use. Um, you know, his vision to essentially by the complicity of this clergy in his quest for domination and to suppress, a, you know, a potential rebellion. So, like, I look at this thing with these uh, with these clerics, these missionaries, and I think the same thing. Like, they're, they are using a religious sort of subtext or maybe even text to to subjugate people. And I think also the assumption to some degree is a level of inherent superiority, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, that which brings me to my next topic, which is, and I, I I really want your take on this. You know, probably more than any of the other ones I've been t- talking about. Um, well, actually, I'm going to ask you a question first. Is an alliance is is, a, is alliance with these people or progress that is rooted in deception worth having? As you pointed out these people will end up being the big losers. And you say, yeah, presumably to shorten a thousand years of darkness. But what does a thousand years of darkness versus a hundred mean to the countless millions who are already dead? Yeah, um, well, that the myth of like progress is a myth, right? That things are always improving, get better, get easier, that we have this ultimate goal where things are, problems are all solved. Um, so um, so that's the first thing, like the first founding is like, so an alliance based on this notion of progress is not acceptable because cause we don't know the ultimate outcome, right? That um, it's like, you know, the tro- trolley, when you have that trolley um, scenario, it's like, right. well, we, let's do this alliance because just in case, you know, like, <laughs> right, you know, if if we kill that one person, maybe we'll save all these other people, right, and get things on track. There's way too many questions no for that. Intended. Right. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't believe that the um, ends justifies the means. Um, it's the way of getting there. So you could see this corruption happen. So I always saw that the religion, the cult, was as, as, as a corruption of the original message. Maybe that's just 
you know, maybe I am an idealist, but I can't help but to not see that as ultimately the thing that actually, it's like this, it sows the seeds of the disasters that we see that would come, right? Like where then somebody who has like that ability to read minds and, you know, do whatever the, the mule, like it sets the stage for something like that. And if they right. did it right, maybe, you know, and just were upfront to be like, are you willing to sacrifice knowing, you know, for the 10,000 years? A lot of times, look, people are willing to sacrifice for their, like, just like right now in our world, we're willing to sacrifice the whole, like, climate for our children. Like not, not even our grandchildren, our children, right. what they have to deal with. And we're just like, for convenience, they're like, yeah, we just need some more plastic and I need, I need gas in my car and I right. need this stuff. I need more plastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, it's got to be clean. It's extra clean. I need the water bottle. <laughs> so the thing that you, so the thing that I feel like you're going to appreciate and I wanted, I wanted to bring up and I want to give you an opportunity to, to talk about is you, cause you talked about the myth of progress and one of the, one of the things that these priests use in their sort of, you know, litany or whatever to these to the masses is, you know, we're going to bring back, you know, progress and science and, you know, predictive techniques for farming and et cetera. And the interesting thing is you see that that narrative being propagated even today for the developing world. And and as we have more and more public intellectuals and scholars, we have historians like yourself out there talking about this you know, Europe was not any more advanced than most of the other countries that they invaded during, during, during colonial times. Like if you look at, you know, places like people have this really, like as an example, this mistaken notion that India was this, this kind of backwater. And it's like, no, at the time, like the, the British actually attempted to set foot on Indian soil twice before they finally managed to get a foothold. Right. And they were repelled by the Mughals. And then if you look at places like Mali, where we, we know Timbuktu, which was a major center of learning as early as the 12th century, you have Central Asia, the, the, the post-Mongol uh, Khanates, like they, those, were, those were places of incredible art and technology and, and science and architecture. And these things are all things that predated um, the ascension of, of your quote-unquote modern European empires. Can you give me the historian's perspective, please? Yeah, I mean, it's like when we think about like technology and even like access. So I, I, I would just like to like kind of layer that, right? We think, oh, we're in such a better state now when like people are still dying of preventable diseases, diseases that weren't endemic, like they weren't spread out, like just the, the pestilence that did occur that we're seeing just like um, when, when they had kind of like sustainable living. So I don't, I, th I think that this idea of being able to use technology, like who gets access to that, right? Like who gets access to modern um, transportation or even just like water filters when, when most of the world globally lives in slums and they don't have access to clean, um, clean water, um, healthcare, but yet we have people like we could be like, yeah, we've cured this or we've solved that issue and we're able to extend the life of this person while we still have people in the United States who can't access basic treatment. So I do, I do think that while there's different and new types of technologies, those come at a cost. Um, and then sometimes like those, those, like when it comes to like being able to predict crops and things or, you know, make sure that things are like seeds. Like now we have a whole bunch of food allergies because we're just like, you know, we've been eating Monsanto wheat and, right. you know, like, and, and it's been, we've created rational systems where it's like industrial farming. So um, that's really made where it's like, we're setting up the stage for a global die-off of humanity, because if they just target a few food sources, they're like, yeah, we can just get rid of those strains of right. people. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I do think it's- um, It adds I mean, another dimension to it, yes. Yeah, it, I mean, when we think about like the kind of early modern, like 1452, when um, Europeans and their mercantile system were going out and um, they weren't any as, any more advanced than the Ottomans 
who, when they conquered Constantinople, they had the best technology. They're the ones that brought the gunpowder to Europe and had mastered that. Now, over time, like the use of the gun was actually more useful in the slave trade, not through the transatlantic slave trade, not through conquering, but actually through trade. Um, and it accelerated the internal divisions in Africa. But it would take until the late 19th century before Europeans could go into into Africa. Like they didn't have either the technology, the medical, they didn't understand the systems of like how people knew when to move seasonally. And so when like Belgium went into the Congo and they moved people around and forced them to live in zones where they knew like we're not supposed to be on the lowlands during this season, they actually caused mass deaths, like 20 million people dying of starvation, dying of diseases that the Congolese folks like they weren't dying of that before colonialism. So it was an absolute disaster, similar like the famine in India. You could just see just like the amount of death that the industrial revolution caused. And even now, you know, how many people died? Millions died from COVID. Hey, that's but progress. I wanted to put this out there too, because I see, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this recently and this is very relevant, but the, the governor of Florida was talking, he gave a press conference the other day and he talked about how I posted about this earlier and his part of his argument for one of the things that he wants taught along, you know, aside from completely destroying the, um, the the uh, I'm sorry the uh, the critical race theory um, curriculum. One of the things that he wants taught is how African slaves benefited by being taught trades, and how they were able to parlay that into you know a living after after the end of slavery. And I was like, well, first of all, and it and it and it brings me back to this idea that people love to talk about in the, the Italian invasion of North Africa and the British Empire and French is they always say they brought the railroads. And I'll say, you know what? The first railroad was built in England in like, I don't remember, 18 whatever. And Germ by the end of the century, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Italy, everybody had railroads by the end of the century. And not one of those countries invaded the other in order to get it or in order to build it. So why is it that now you want to say, oh, well, you we we, gave, we we built the railroads in Africa. And it's like, dude, you didn't need to. But the other thing is that chattel slaves all, you know, they had metalworking and metallurgy as early as the third century BC, right? They had weaving far longer than that, you know, also. And the idea that slaves would be able to ply their trade, which none of them were able to, none of them were permitted to. And when they did ply their trade in order to benefit their communities, what happened? They burned the communities down. So mm -hmm. it, it, the, the reason why I mentioned the, the, the I'm not going to say his name because he's an idiot, the governor of Florida, the reason why I mentioned that is because this, this whole um, clerical slash cleric, uh, cleric as statecraft thing smacks of that. It smacks of the whole, well, we're going to come and bring you railroads and we're going to bring you, you know, metalworking and we're going to bring you weaving. And in exchange, you're going to basically become part of our, our larger alliance, which is going to produce essentially bodies for us to go and fight a war. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that the, the kidnapped Africans brought um, technology, skills, culture, um, things that that um, they weren't able to that that um, the broader society was able to profit from um, even even they brought in vaccinations, inoculations. They, that was something that was indigenous to Africa um, for the smallpox. And so yep. um, the technologies of rice, indigo, um, you know, and just very inventive ways of, of doing things. And so, you know, there is, I mean, he wants to keep that myth because it serves him, right? right. And, and that's what they would say, even if they were like, okay, we were let that, um, our ancestors were in better material conditions in Africa, they would use the orthodoxy of Christianity, like, well, now that when they left out, like when we took them out of Africa, we saved them. They wouldn't have been Christian. When there was right. Christianity in Africa, both in Ethiopia and in the Congo of beautiful indigenous forms of Christianity that were deeply rooted, 
for hundreds of years and in Ethiopia's case, like since the beginning of Christianity. Right, right. So yes, we could have had an indigenous African Christianity without Europeans, but they think that they saved black people either through faith, science, um, and being civilized. Right, right. Yes, and that's like the that was the final thing that I wanted to touch upon. I'm not going to take too long with this, but and I sort of alluded to it when I mentioned this idea of inherent superiority, which is mm -hmm. this mythology that people are primitive or they're savage or whatever, and it's like that mythology simply needs to die. You know, just because mm -hmm. I'm wearing pants and a bow tie and a, with a frock coat does not make me civilized. And I mean, you know. You have people out here right now wantonly spreading disease and not washing their hands, and they want to point at other people in developing nations and call them savages. It's it's ridiculous. I want to I want to give you the last couple minutes before we sign off, before I do my, my closing shtick, to give me your thoughts on this on this episode. Okay, well, I I guess I have I have some complex thoughts around it, right? So we see, you know, like. We see, we see my man's, um, you know, kind of like vibe, like he's like, okay, I want this marriage, but it's not just for marriage, you know, like he, he wants to do some other things. So, so I think that's, um, it was I mean, interesting, you, you mean he wants right? to get busy. He wants, <laughs> he wants to, get, to busy. get busy, you know, with the can human, I, can I, you know, not just, <laughs> I want to inject some, okay. So I want to inject something cause we do have a few minutes. I want to inject something that I want you to, I want you to include your commentary. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, this was something that I wanted to put in my comments and I, I forgot to because the woman who plays the queen, the, the future queen, the future empress, and, and not that it's particularly um, important, but she does present as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And one of her parents is Welsh. I don't, we don't, we don't, we actually from IMDb don't know who her other, who her other parent is. I'm not going to get all tied up in that, but I want to mention the fact that he is effectively trying to extend the life of his dominion by essentially appropriating breeding rights of a woman of color, at least mm -hmm. perceptually, right? So I please include that in your in your analysis. Like, am I off in that? Mm. Um. Yeah, I mean, thank you for for bringing that up because I mean, she's also kind of like. Yeah, because, I mean, she does present as, as a woman of color. I mean, it's clearly, I mean, she's not white, white. I mean, even though we have Tom Jones, he's Welsh, you know, like, it's like, you know, these right. Welsh folks, like, what's going on with the Welsh folks? You Sorry, know? Tom Jones. Because, <laughs> I mean, there's no way he's not black. I'm in denial. Like, right, right. So well. we, claim, we claim him. He's claimed. <laughs> we are claiming him. The racial draft. Um, but, yeah, and the racial draft. There are so many people we're, we're trading. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, um, so, so the fact that you have, um, that they, they have, you know, also the art, you know, which I think is very interesting. It's like that kind of movement art and the, and the, um, pigment. So they do have these resources that are highly valuable. Um, and that her womb, right. Is like, is the beginning of, um, of a new empire, right? So he has this idea of like, you know, so he's shifting from, cause he knows that there's that, um, that their genetic material has been corrupted. And, but he's like, yeah, there's not gonna be an issue. Like when we, we mix you like, you're a strong stock, I'm a strong stock. Um, so, so it is a little bit like, you know, and then on top of that, are we not getting some of the colorism because it's all like everybody that is like every woman in this series is biracial and that um that allows them, i mean does that give them that allowance to do certain things and be um you know especially with her with her ambiguity in some ways like she's she's like you know like when they're taking someone of of color and maybe they're mixed race maybe they're ambiguous like with the south asians like when the first season like they really did kind of make them space muslims like very yes. warlike and and everything and so the um it was megan markle vibes by it, the way yeah there was some serious, i was getting yeah. i'm sorry but i was getting Meg, megan markle vibes from her. <laughs> yeah but she i mean she she was kind of like sassy sassy black woman and he was like i'm digging it and uh 
it's um I mean but that's I mean I don't know is that how the Rome the Romans rolled like that right you know you have the Cleopatra controversy but I mean it's um there's some some other like pretty cool things my my cousin who's actually a gamer he has a podcast too on um, he actually found a Belgian story of of um, one of the knights of the round table so like, we got to go into that so like we I want to do of the like the um, black knights like black characters in medieval Queen Charlotte's Europe yeah the Queen yes. Charlotte's and 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 that there sure. are these stories so so we'd have to have him on on um, okay. fresh pulp I'm down with to that. talk about what I'm he, down with that. Um, what he found yeah so we're gonna we're gonna do some like we can nerd out. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, I, I, this, we have there. There was so much in this episode, and we're gonna we're gonna continue talking about this because I under I feel like these are undercurrents and recurring themes. But I want to um, to once again thank you for being my co-host for being on here. This is Marguerite Hill. She is the uh, co-founder and executive director of Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Um, she is also the Muslim Futures strategist. I'm sorry. She's also the Futures strategist. Sorry for Fresh Pulp Magazine, and obviously my co-host here at Dark Matters Podcast. So I want to thank her for being here. I also want to, to ask everyone to please go and interact with social media for for Muslim Arc. They're a wonderful organization. They provide anti-racism competency training. I learned a lot, despite that I feel that I'm I'm very in tune with, you know, my my failings. Whatever you think you know, you will learn more. Um, I also want to ask everyone to please go and interact with Fresh Pulp Magazine's social media. I want you to, if you're watching us on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe. Um, follow us on Twitter. Check out our tw our tip button. But also, I have recently updated our um, our wish list, so which is comprised primarily of books. It's on the front uh, page. It's on the right side, uh, about midway down. So if you feel like either just contributing to the acquisition of one of these books or you want to buy the book for us outright feel free to you can put a note in your in your venmo or cash app tip that says hey this is for this book or whatever and you can prepare to get a thank you here on on the podcast so once again thank you again marguerite we will see you all next week and uh enjoy the rest of your weekend